Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vineyard. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be in the house. Mm-mm-mm. I was in New Hampshire all week, hanging out with Vineyard people. But I just want you guys to know, you guys are my favorite Vineyard people. And if you think about it, um, this week, uh, pray for me and River. We're going, to, um, we're going to England this week. We're going to do some ministry with the Vineyard in, uh, in Manchester, and then in London, and then we're going to Wales. So next Sunday I'll be in Wales. And um, I feel like the Lord's just doing stuff in the vineyard all over the world right now. And uh, it's a good time to be in this tribe. And so we're going to do that. So if you think of us, pray for us, because I don't travel well. I'm like linen. I get really wrinkly, really quick. <clears throat> and they don't come out. Yeah. All right. Hey, if you want to, open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. I want to talk to you about Jesus over death this morning. This is a series we're doing here called Jesus Over Everything, and in the first week we talked about how Jesus is over sickness, and in the second week we talked about how Jesus is over sin, and in last week we talked about how Jesus is over demonic power, and this week I want to talk about how Jesus is over death. One of the things I noticed several months ago as I was just reading through the Gospels again is that nothing is too hard for Jesus. Everything that comes to him, he just has a way of dealing with it. And it's Jesus over everything. And we're going to see that again this morning. But before we read our scripture, I want to talk about death for a little bit. Everybody ready? Yeah. Aren't you so excited? Mm. I don't know if you've noticed this, but for most of us, death is sort of an unsettling thing. Most people don't like to think about it. And for the most part, we try to, we really try and avoid it. Um, And here's what we, here's what we do. Uh, at least here in America, we've taken like sort of a professional and a clinical approach to the ordeal. You know, we, 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 have, we have a select few of professionals who handle the body and they keep things really efficient and tidy. And so by the time that we have to come and actually take a look at it, it's mostly just a mannequin in a wooden box or a little bit of dust in an urn. Isn't that right? I think even these are, you know, distance and denial strategies that just try to keep it at bay. We just, we want it as far away from us as possible. So that's on one end of the spectrum. Then on the other end of the spectrum, um, there's a part of our culture that's death-obsessed. And it's mostly an overreaction to our culture's deeply ingrained death-denial strategies. You know, so for some of us, it'd be way better to watch a slasher film or a horror film where a handful of people die in a terrible way than face the fact that everyone's going to die in a much less dramatic fashion. You know, I think that's one of the ways these things keep coming up to us. And I think death is scary. I mean, if we were talking about, if we were going to be honest for a moment, I think a lot of us in here would admit that death is scary to us. And I think death is scary to a lot of us for some really basic reasons. So let's just go ahead and talk about them for a few minutes, okay? Um, The main reason that death is scary to some of us is because of the unknown. Uh, These are the questions that surround death for everyone. How will I die? You ever thought about that? When will I die? And then this lovely question, will I suffer? Um, then there's the worst question of all, which is, is there anything after death? That one. 
And I hope you notice that there's no really great way to answer any of those questions. And the truth is, at every single level, we kind of just, we don't know. We kinda, we've got some ideas, but we don't know, right? We don't know. And when I don't know, I feel like something is out of my control. Do you ever know what, you know what I mean? Like anything you don't know, there's a certain degree to which it's out of your control. And then when it's out of your control, it's what? Scary. You don't like that. The second thing about death that we don't like is that it's universal. As much as our denial tries to focus our attention elsewhere, the one thing that just sort of breaks through all of our denial barriers is the fact that death is ultimately unavoidable. Everyone is going to die. We did that a few weeks ago. I kind of liked it. I love the fact that a few weeks ago when we, when we prayed for the sick, we, we didn't pray for the sick until we had all confessed that we're all going to die. Why? I love that. It's, it's, the, it's the already and the not yet of the kingdom. You know, we're just bringing it together. But death is universal. Everyone's going to die. Everything that has ever lived also dies. There's no loophole. You cannot be rich enough. You cannot be smart enough. You cannot be healthy enough. There is no pill. Eventually, death has a way of hacking all of our codes. It's universal, and we don't like that. You know, we look for loopholes. We get loopholes on our taxes. You know, we got little life hacks. Well, there's no life hack for this one. And then finally, the thing that we don't like about death is the fact that it's sad. There's a part of death that's just flat out sad. Whenever something comes to an end, there's almost always an accompanying grief. I remember being a little bit sad after I graduated from high school and then after I graduated from college. Anybody know what I'm talking about? By the way, those are good things, right? It would, be, it would be way sadder for you not to graduate high school, right? Yeah. But have you ever noticed that even sometimes there's an attending grief that comes to the end of something, even if it's good? So the end of something always has, even if it's a very good thing, oftentimes has an attending grief that has to be looked at, dealt with. I remember that. I remember graduating from high school and being like a little sad. It's like, man, I was stoked, but I was also kind of like, oh, man, this is never going to, this is never coming back, you know? Yeah, I remember being a little bit sad when my kids went to school. Also, a good thing. It would be worse for them not to go up and go to school. So similarly, death is a kind of ending, and we struggle with endings because they're oftentimes sad. And as modern Americans, we know almost nothing about appropriate grief and sadness. Now, this isn't to say that Americans aren't depressed and despairing, because we are. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. But it is to say that we go to such great extremes to never have to be sad and we go to such extremes to never have to grieve that the prospect of unavoidable sadness is unsettling to our core there's not a pill there's no three-step method and here's the thing about grief grief has to be attended to and it usually keeps its own schedule again things being outside of our control well, we don't like it but when we read the gospels one of the things that comes into view is the fact that jesus is the Lord and Savior over death. Sickness is not too hard for him. Sin is not too difficult. Deponic power is no big deal to Jesus. And similarly, neither is death. So that's what we're going to look at today. Jesus over death. By the way, this is one of the best stories in the whole Bible. So why don't you open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. Let's just read this real quick. Actually, it's sort of a long passage. There's no way to cut it down. We'll read John chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1. It goes like this. A man named Lazarus was sick. 
He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to the disciples, let's go back to Judea. But the disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you'll really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go and let's die with Jesus. See, Thomas gets a bad rap, but he's he's ultimately a man of courage. Come on. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. And many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary and their loss. <clears throat> when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying, and everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you're the Messiah, Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here, and he wants to see you. So immediately, she went to him. Jesus stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing, right? When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. And he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing by said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, 
Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. I love that story. What a great moment. I'm going to tell you right up front. There's more in this passage than we're going to get to, okay? We're not even going to really dig in. I don't know any other way to say it. There's just so much here. So you should definitely read this this week on your own. But here's what we're going to do for the first bit here. I just want to recap just so we can sort of get this story into our brains. The story begins with Lazarus being sick. And I hope you notice that in the first four verses, it was mentioned that he was sick four times. Over and over again, over and over again, John is telling us Lazarus is sick. He says it over and over again. He's sort of underlying the fact that this is no normal sickness. We've all been a little bit sick. And Lazarus was like really sick. It was intense. It was so intense that his sisters sent word for Jesus to come to their house. And they wanted Jesus to come to their house for, you know, all kinds of reasons. But the main reason would be um, Jesus is a healer. And his reputation by this point was already well known. And people oftentimes sent Jesus a word and he would come to their house and, and heal the person who was sick or even raise them from the dead. And so they had sent word for Jesus to come. But more than that, more than knowing that Jesus was a healer, Jesus was their friend. I hope you saw the language that's in this passage. And it's also really key all the way through the Gospel of John. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, these were not just, these were not peripheral people in Jesus' life. These would have been his home team. He often went to Bethany because it was close to Jerusalem. These were his, these were his best friends. His best friends. So they call for Jesus because he's a healer, but they're actually calls, also calling for Jesus because uh, you're my friend. You know? Uh, how many of you have ever had a family member get really sick? And what, what do they do? Call the family in, right? You, you call your closest to you, and that's what they were doing. They needed healing, but they also wanted their best friends there. And then Jesus does this really weird thing. He drags his feet. And there's no other way to read the passage. If you get a commentary that tries to make excuse for the fact that Jesus is dragging his feet, throw that commentary in the fire. Here's what Jesus did. He got an invitation, and then he just slowed down. It's obvious. And here's what's strange about it. There were other occasions in the Gospels where Jesus takes off with the people almost in a hurry. Come at once. Jesus just goes right with them. Jairus' daughter would be one good example. And by the time he does arrive, so Jesus drags his feet, and then by the time he does arrive, Lazarus is no longer sick, and he's no longer sick because he's dead. And not only is he dead, but he's four days in the tomb dead. He's stinking to high heaven. And so both, in, both Mary and Martha come out to Jesus. And I hope you noticed in the passage this morning, they both say the exact same thing to Jesus. What did they say? If you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. Now, there's all kinds of subharmonics that are happening in that little statement, right? Can you hear the, like, the little reverberations? Yeah. All kinds of harmonics. There's definitely sadness. Like, 
if you'd been here, this, this wouldn't have happened. There's some, there's some attending sadness. There's definitely some confusion. Like, Jesus, we sent word early. If you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. But how many of you believe also that there may have been just a little bit of anger? What the heck? Like, hey, bro, we sent you word early. I, we know. We know that you heard about this early. We know. And if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. We've seen you. We've seen you heal the guy with the, with the legs that didn't work down at the pool just a few days ago. John chapter 5. We, we know that you, that you heal sick people all the time. That, that Peter's mom had a fever. It was probably going to kill her. And you just, like, you just raised her up. You just, like, you, we know, right? And so there's this little bit of anger. And the anger would have been maybe a touch more personal because they were actually friends. So the whole, the whole scene is filled with emotion. And one of my favorite parts of this story is the fact that Jesus cries. There's two things that Jesus begins to express in this passage that are so unlike Jesus, or at least the stained glass version that a lot of us have grown up with. Uh, one, uh, how many of you noticed that twice the Bible said that Jesus was angry? Yeah. yeah. What was he angry at? I have all kinds of ideas. I'll just let you stew with that one. That's a a good thing to think about this week. Jesus was angry, but the the Bible also said that Jesus cried. And and let me just tell you something, church. This is utterly astounding. See, God has visceral emotions. God has visceral emotions. Um, God is not a floating ball of gaseous intelligence. See, I grew up... One of the things that I realized many years ago was that I had grown up mostly with a God concept that went something like this. A God is like a gas in heaven that's really smart. He's like, you know, and, and this, he's, it's like non-emotional intelligence, you know? God is the author of creation, you know? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. You know, you, God, is, God is essentially a, a computer, you know? And one of the things that we see in the Gospels, specifically in Jesus, is that God has visceral emotions, that God has a body. And because he does, he has feelings. And in Jesus Christ, God weeps over every person who dies. One of the things that I see in this is that holiness and Christian maturity isn't stoic control. Growing in God is probably going to mean more tears rather than less. Yeah. So if you were hoping to get better control of your life, and if you were hoping to follow the Jesus method, and, and then after a few years you would become more in control and you'd get more space from things and it wouldn't hurt as much, I want to tell you that's not really the formula. If you follow the Jesus method, you are going to become a crybaby. Probably a lot. Yeah, Because God's going to begin to bring you into the pain. And then Jesus says this amazing thing. He says, roll away the stone. Obviously, this is a, an echo of his own resurrection, right? Roll away the stone. But I also believe that these words are a little parable. They're a little parable. And it's a parable about the heart. And Ezekiel 36, 26 says this. He says, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in, in you. I'll remove from your heart the heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And so Jesus when he says remove the stone, I think what he's really getting at, I think this is one of those like little parable moments where he's basically saying um, to everyone around him, oh, you're going to you're gonna have to get rid of 
the hardness in your heart for what I'm about to do. You, you got to get rid of the stone that's lodged in your soul to hear the word that I'm about to speak. Like resurrection oftentimes has to do some rearranging, has to do some internal rearranging, those things that block us out. Hard hearts cannot receive the word of God. A stone can't receive a new spirit. It has to be removed, and so Jesus sets it aside. And he calls out to Lazarus, and he quite literally puts a new spirit in him. Now, I've told you all this story twice now because I really just want to talk about one thing. It's a crazy and somewhat, somewhat unsettling reality that the scriptures seem to be putting out. And I just want to share something with you this morning. And I, I'm, I'm going to confess to you that I'm not even entirely sure what all this means, but I know that it's true. Okay? One big thought here this morning. Here's the big thought. God will let you die but he will not leave you dead. Lazarus was sick at the beginning of the story. He was dead in the middle, but he was alive in the end. You and I were sort of okay with the beginning. We're definitely okay with the ending, and we don't ever want to look at the middle. But the thing that life, and then this story in particular, seems to be telling us is this very crazy paradox and it's the paradox that that goes like this God will let you die but he will not leave you dead I don't know if I can share a bigger paradox with you and as somebody who comes to church every single Sunday to speak good news this one stresses the goal a little bit I want to take this idea and I want to break it down into three parts okay I want to show you that it's true in at least three ways, and I know that it's true in probably a hundred. First of all, it's true in the biggest, uh, the grandest, and the widest versions of truth. And, and by that I mean it is eschatologically true. Everybody in the room say eschatological. And you're thinking, what is that? Okay, here, here's what that big word means. Eschatological or eschatology means the study of the end, like revelation and beyond, right? The study of the end. How does this thing come together? And here's what I want you to know. The fact that God will let you die, but he will not leave you dead, it is in the grandest, widest, most extreme versions of truth, it is absolutely eschatologically true. The raising of Lazarus is many things, and one of those things is this. It's an eschatological parable. It's about the end. It's about the end. It is the end in the present, meaning it's a small window through which we might see the broad vistas of God's never-ending future. We live in a world where people die. In fact, everybody's going to die. And though, and, and though uh, even though everybody's going to die, a few people have been raised, but only one person has been resurrected. This is really important, by the way. Okay? A few people throughout the history of the world, have been raised from the dead, but only one person has been resurrected. Because resurrection is that, is, that, is that hope that God has planted in our hearts. And resurrection is to come back and to never die again. And the only person who's been resurrected is Jesus himself. And so even in this way, this story about Lazarus here, this is a parable about something much, much bigger. 
poor guy died twice. And so, and so because of this, the fact that everybody's going to die, and a few people have been raised, but only one has been resurrected, that puts us in this place of waiting. That puts all of us in this place of waiting. In fact, the whole cosmos is waiting. What are we waiting for? Well, we're waiting for the return of Jesus. And when he returns, he will raise all those who have fallen asleep. I hope you see that. I hope you see that. In this scenario, we in the church are like Mary and Martha who send word to Jesus to come and help. And his delay is an answer of sorts. For 2,000 years, the church has been sending word to Jesus that we need him to return and we need his help. Jesus has been dragging his feet. Right? He's been dragging his feet. Why? Here's one reason why. He's, he's been dragging his feet a little bit because he's not simply coming to heal the church. And he is not simply coming to restore the church. And he's not coming to keep bad things from happening. Rather, he's coming only after death has done its absolute worst. And then he will appear and deal death one final blow. Death is not the ending. Instead, it's only the intermission. There's one final sleep. And Jesus is not coming to do a surface work. He's coming to go all the way to the bottom and bring it all the way up. This is our eschatological hope. And so the whole cosmos is waiting. Uh, how many of you ever feel like, ah, there's just something in your soul, like even on the most perfect day, even on the most perfect October day when all the colors are right and it is precisely 69 degrees and, 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 and no one has been annoying <laughs> and you got eight and a half hours of sleep and, you know, how many of you, even in your soul on that day, you know, this is, this is good. This is good. Like this is Genesis garden good. And then if you were to even get the slightest bit quiet, you would know that in your soul, there's something more. Something's still not right. And it's not that you're a, it's not that you're like a critical jerk either. It's just that you know there's something else. There's an ache in your heart for something more. What is that? Well, it's the Mary and Martha in your heart. You know that there's a sickness. You know that there's a sickness that leads to death. You've maybe even tasted it a little bit. Some of us have had close encounters with that stuff. Not only that, but all of us are going to have one really intimate encounter with that stuff. And so you send word to Jesus, and he's dragging his feet a little bit, and we're in this posture of waiting. So the entire cosmos is, is John chapter 11. It is, it is all of us over at Mary and Martha's house sitting around a tomb and we're waiting for Jesus to show up. It's eschatologically true. Now we bring it in a little bit. This story of Lazarus is also a prophetic parable for Jesus' own life. So we have to, we have to get down here to Jesus' own life. It's a parable that Jesus would die. It's a parable that he would lay in a tomb, and then after three days, he would be raised to new life. So when Jesus shows up to the Lazarus story, he's enacting his own story early. And as surprising as it is for dead Lazarus to be raised to life, it was going to be way more surprising that a powerful, healing, and wise Jesus was going to be killed. Like people had no idea. It was almost the reverse surprise. And so you might be thinking, well, 
great. This is super depressing, great. If this is the deal, then why can't or why won't God do us a real solid and just like wave a magic wand and do away with death, you know? Just give us a little Harry Potter. Like, I'm all pumped about the resurrection thing. Why not make this a bit more efficient? Here's why. Because God is not working on the surface of things. God is working in the depths. Our need is not a surface need. Uh, Humanity did not simply scrape its knee, and God wasn't pulling out the first aid kit. He wasn't even doing advanced surgery when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it wasn't even like an advanced surgical procedure. It was not that at all. Instead, instead, he's remaking us. And just like Adam was formed from the dust of the earth, Jesus will one day take our decayed bodies, bodies that have returned to dust, and he will breathe the breath of life into us once more. And this time it will be life forevermore, just as he lives forever. God is not working on the surface of things. He's working in the depths of things. And so he is going to let this go all the way down to the bottom. We're going to go all the way down to the bottom. God's ultimate dream is Eden. It is not a slightly better version of what you and I currently have. God is not looking to build an addition on your sort of okay house. Kind of works like this. Any of you guys ever watch those home improvement shows? You know, HGTV. Even the men in here watch it. It's the weirdest thing. Like, I have no interest in it, but like, if, you, if the channel falls there, you will watch it. Here's what I've noticed. There's like two kinds of home improvement shows. Two kinds of home improvement shows. There's the one kind of home improvement show. It's like, hey, we're going to remodel your whole house for $200. You know? How do you do it? Well, you just, you just go to Lowe's and you, and you find all the paint that no one wanted and You know, the colors are a little crazy, but you just go with it. And you paint your whole house like maroon. And then then you just go out and you find some pallets. You make yourself some pallet shelves. And you make yourself a pallet headboard. And you know what? At the end, the house looks different, but it looks crappy, right? It's like, it's definitely different. You remodeled everything. But at the end of the day, the pallet headboard and the pallet shelves and the maroon walls, it looks crappy. It's different, but it's crappy. It's just, a, it's just a different version of the crap I had before, right? We just, we just found some stuff that no one else wanted. We reconfigured that junk. We put it in our house, and we called it a remodel, you know? It's like, then there's the other kind of remodel. You guys know what I'm talking about? And it's like, they have sponsors from every amazing company. And they basically take your house, and then you go away, and they park semis in front of your house or something, And then when they pull the semis away, it's like, that's not even my house, you know? Like you have, there's a refrigerator in there that knows how many gallons of milk you have. And there's, you know, everything is glory. Everything is just like marble, you know? It's incredible. I mean, and even the marble has like heated floors. There's like radiant heat, like, because you would never want to step on a cold floor. It would just be, be abusive, you know? I mean, it's, it's your house. It's the footprint, but then it's not your house, right? It's like a totally different kind of life. 
Well, that's what Jesus is doing. He's not going to put a pallet headboard in your life. He's not going to put some pallet shelves and some crappy maroon paint that no one wanted uh, from Lowe's. He's not going to do that. No, he's going to blow up the house. He's going to let the house fall down. He's going to let your house fall all the way down. He's going to let your house rot. He's going to let your house go all the way to the bottom. And some of us know what I'm talking about right now. And when it gets all the way to the bottom, when the house has fallen down, this takes a while, by the way, and when even your body is decayed and there's nothing but a little bit of dust laying in a coffin, he's going to gather that dust, just like God did in Eden, because this is what he likes to do. And he's going to reform you, and he's going to reform your mom, and your brother, and your great uncle. And he's even going to reform your aunt who had the drug problem. You know? Like, he's, he's so kind. He's going, to, he's going to gather those frail ashes, like the stuff that, like... And by the way, if you look at one pile of ashes, like the drug addict ashes, I, I, they look just like the good person ashes, you know? And he's going to gather all those ashes up, and he's going to form them, and then he's going to lean over those ashes. He's going to breathe the breath of life into them. Jesus is not doing a crappy pallet work. He is doing the reformation work. He's going all the way down, all the way down. He's going to breathe the breath of life into it, and you're going to become a living soul just like Adam, only you're never going to die. You're never going to die. Eschatological. Jesus' own story. But then it's Jesus' story that becomes our story. Or to say it another way, it's the ultimate story told in miniature. And I, I just want to spend a minute on this. Here's what I've come to believe. I've come to believe that resurrection is the way of the universe. That death is not the final word. I've come to believe that silence is not forever. I've come to believe that there's a symphony that will play at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then it has many, many movements. And I've come to believe that death and resurrection is the way this thing works. That things live, and then things die, and then things are reborn. And by the way, this is happening all the time in every corner of the cosmos. There are things that are living, things that are dying, and then things that are being reborn. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate work of God, living, dying, and then being reborn forevermore. And what is true in the macro is also true in the micro. And that's what I want to talk about just for a second. How many of you know that sometimes parts of your life have to die? Parts of your life have to die. Not only that, but I'll just tell you this, this little jewel of a word. Some parts of your life are absolutely going to die before you breathe your last breath. Sometimes whole parts of our life just up and die. Sometimes it's our dreams. This is happening all the time. Sometimes our dreams die. Or sometimes it's a relationship. Or sometimes it's a job. Or sometimes it's a business. Or sometimes it's a possibility. And then sometimes it seems like your entire future is gone. Like all of our best days are behind us. Like you're, you're, you're here, you're breathing, but you're in your brain and in your heart you're thinking, all the good stuff was like, it happened back then, you know? It happened back then. Not only that, but sometimes we even deserve the death that's come upon us. Let's just be honest here for a minute. Uh, sometimes we're just stupid. We just did a dumb thing. 
We were totally unwise and we were dumb and we didn't know what we were doing. And then all of a sudden, this, this hope or this dream or this thing that we had, it just, it just collapsed and it, and it fell on the floor and it died. And then sometimes we don't deserve it. Sometimes the world is just way bigger and way wilder than we ever imagined. I, can I tell you something? The world is wild, you guys. You know that story about when Jesus went out into the desert to fast and pray? Uh, Mark's version says that wild animals were around him. I love that because that's, that's your life, by the way. That's your life. You know, you want to go seek God? Guess what? You're going to encounter wild animals. That's his way of saying, this world, it's good, but it's not safe. There's wild stuff out there. Sometimes you don't deserve it. Sometimes you had the best intentions, and the world is just way bigger. It has more gravity, and it's way wilder than you ever imagined. And then we think, there's nothing good ahead. There's just nothing good ahead. And so then we go into ultimate struggle mode. We just start grasping for air. We try to hold on to a dream. We try to keep a thing alive in our own strength. And sometimes we're afraid of letting go. And then we begin to think that surely God has forgotten us. That he's working over there. Like, we even begin to do the comparison thing. We go, oh, well, he's working with those people, but he's surely forgotten me. Look at this. Everything in my life is dead, right? He's over there. He heals the guy at the pool of Bethesda, right? He heals the guy. He heals this guy. He heals this blind guy. The blind guy's on the, the road. The blind Bartimaeus. That guy got his eyes back. We asked Jesus to come and heal our brother. No answer, right? We start doing the comparison game. And then not only are we sure that we have no good days ahead of us, we're also bitter in our hearts. We begin to think that he's with other people, but then not with us. We see his healing and restoring work here and there, but when it's us, maybe when it's our brother, we feel as helpless as Mary and Martha. And then some other times it feels like you did everything right. It feels like... I was friends with Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I invited him to my house. This wasn't the first time I invited him to my house. I didn't just invite him when things got bad. I invited him when he just needed something to eat. Like, I cooked meals for Jesus. You know? I made a space for Jesus. I did devotions. <laughs> I had personal worship time. You know? I read my Bible. I even, like evangelized one time. I kept a prayer journal. I, I didn't, by the way. <laughs> Never doing that. But, you know, some people do that. I hate journaling. Yeah. I, I told him about my trouble. And I begged him to come. I did like, did that, you know, that charismatic thing where we begged him to come to our house and and in the end, you're just, you're just Lazarus dead in the tomb. And for all the world, it seems like Jesus just came too late. You know? Not only that, but maybe he's not even interested in healing. Sometimes I think he's not interested in healing. And here's why I think he's sometimes not interested in healing. I think it's because sometimes he's got resurrection on his mind. Maybe he wants to breathe the breath of life into the ground dust of your remains. Maybe the darker path is the better path. Maybe the one where we have to trust the most is the one that's best. Maybe the situation where literally none of our efforts matter, like they literally won't 
work, where you can't move, maybe that's the best place. Maybe when it's all up to Jesus, that's the very best place. That's what I've come to believe. So what's the word today? Here's the word. God will let you die, but he will not leave you dead. I want to read one more passage this morning, just so we can take it up. These are the words of Paul, who knew this story, and who embodied this story, and who ruminated on this story. These are the words that he wrote, believers just like you and me. He says this, he says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. Directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with an accompanying shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, first the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Yeah. What does it mean to be a Christian? Here's part of what it means to be a Christian. Here's part of what it means. Guys, it might not be easy. It might get really dark, but he will not leave you there. He will not leave you there. We have a hope that will not let us go. Not let us go. There's always another story. There's always another story. Amen? Yeah. Hey, I think there's some like resurrection stuff here this morning that we need to do. And it might not be eschatological because you're not dead. And it might not be Jesus' own story. Because only he can die for the sins of the world. But I have this feeling that I have this feeling that he might have been waking us up to the fact that the macro was a micro reality for us today. If you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up? Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook. Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.